Hello, and welcome to the second installment of the uh, second prequel uh, entitled uh, Life Before the Alien Magic. This episode, or this series of episodes, the second story is titled King of the Northwood. In this particular episode, um, Charon, the man who has the ability when speaking uh, anything, uh, it allows those words to come true. Uh, he enters the village Bloody Tunic and befriends a young boy that will allow him to gain control of the whole world. So let's begin. It was 12 minutes after 12 midnight when the assault on Thoreau began. The guards at the front post were silently done away with. Kirchhall, with his turquoise earrings and white robe, himself luminescent in the moonlight, waited patiently. He turned around and silently reviewed his troops. Behind him stood some twelve hundred goblins, crude and profane and ugly. They chortled and shoved one another, waiting for the order to enter the city and to cause havoc and to feast on the flesh of the innocents. Impatiently, the wizard called up, well, let's have it. Let us in. The enormous wooden doors shuddered and slowly crept open. The pale, unlit houses of the city were revealed. The goblins did not hesitate, but ran helter-skelter within. The place slowly awakened, though in terror. The goblins burst into each and every house, invaded the bedrooms, and took the children from the desperate grip of their horrified parents. The children were gathered in an enormous writhing heap. Each one of the kids' legs were broken to prevent them from running away. Their screams summoned the parents, but those who dared respond, trying to rescue their own, were swiftly done away with. The goblins sat in watch, laughing in their hideous fashion, as the fires consumed the houses. They mimicked the calls of distress and grief. The goblins ignored the assembling troops for it was Kirchall now that entered the fray. Give up your city, the white-robed man urged the grieving, perplexed, frightened soldiers. Give up your city, join my army, and live to see another day. That is, if you do not have a tattoo of a three-headed tydra on your calf. What's this about, wizard? demanded Captain Arrow. The distinguished officer stepped clear of the ragtag assemblage of fellow soldiers. We have not done any harm to you, no harm to anyone. That, to be sure, is not our way. You, most assuredly, must know that. My grief is not with the people of Theriel, certainly not, but I do have issue with your habit of allowing just anyone inside your city. Should you have kept but one man out, I would have passed your city by. I am sorry, although the fault lies squarely with yours. And with that said, Kirchall brought his hands up and fashioned a blue-white ball of intense flame. The flame made the man's looks frightful, garish. With a shout, the wizard released his magic. It crashed into the armored captain, the metal reflecting the light, the rivets popping like popcorn kernels, the soldier screaming as a flame like liquid tar seeped into his armor and consumed flesh. 
Captain Arrow made a swift, defensive move. Despite the intense, debilitating pain, he removed his stiletto blade and lunged at the wizard. But Kirchhoff was too clever. He saw the captain. He interpreted the move and defeated the threat instantly. Oh, you are a fool, sir, the wizard determined, spinning around to meet the man. There was a sinister grin on Kirchhoff's face. You've made your choice, a bad one, if you ask me. And with that said, he quickly summoned another ball of fire and channeled it into the soldier. The man's cries of despair could be heard throughout the entire dying city. Kirchhoff swiftly descended upon the dying captain. He lifted the man's pant leg and looked for the telltale tattoo. It was not there. Kirchhoff stood up and returned to the addled, horrified troops. I respect cruel men, that is to be sure. What do you say? Do you want to leave this city with your lives? Do you wish your family spared? The soldiers looked at one another. They may have been entrusted with the security of the city, but they realized that their role in defending their home was now over. Two soldiers swiftly fell on their swords. The others wiped tears and soot from their faces. What will you have us do? asked one of the soldiers, quietly, dreading what the wizard might request. I'm looking for a particular person. He is said to be living here, inside Thuriel. Should you find him and kill him and bring that body back to me, then I will spare the rest of the city that you have grown to love. Yes, even the fiercer goblins I will call off. Find the man, living or dead, I don't care. He carries a three-headed hydra tyrant tattoo on his calf. So what do you say? Would you do this? And I will spare what's left of your city. But be quick. The offer ends at dawn. The soldiers quickly dispersed. They needed to search every hovel and hiding spot. As the hours passed, and this without one man being brought before the wizard, the bounty hunter Shinser sidled up to Kirchhoff. The wizard kicked a blade in the hot embers and picked it up. Despite the heat of the steel, he handed it to Shinser. What am I supposed to do with this? asked the bounty hunter, perplexed. I am troubled that none of the soldiers have yet found the man I seek. The man you told me was here. The wizard shoved Shinser and thrust a finger out at the burning city. You must find this man if the soldiers fail to do so. Thurio was the best lead I had, really the only one. Should you not find him? Should he not be here? I'm afraid for you. Shinster looking at Kirchhoff, looked at Kirchhoff, then at the blade, then back at the wizard. Go now, the white-robed man instructed the bounty hunter. You have three hours to stay my wrath and Scherzer hurriedly disappeared into the city that was crumbling fast. The Council of the Eight, the eldest, most powerful mayors representing the villages of the Northwood, was hurriedly assembled. What is this? asked Mayor Quitch. How is our corner of the world now in distress? We have the report from a stable hand, something that must be addressed. What might that be? queried Mayor Valk. This man has declared himself to be the Silver Snake. That is what the boy said. Mayor Gordas winced. Well, the boy did say that a stranger, a man from South Fork, a day's journey beyond the North Wood, did in fact refer to himself as the Silver Snake. Lol, 
threw up his hands. Only a fool would call himself the silver snake. There would be a purge regu re regulated by us. A purge many men would not survive. No one wants the prophecy of the silver snake to happen. He must be slain. He will most assuredly be slain. He must know that. Mayor Roger of Village Foxstole demanded, What did this man do to give such an empty boast any credence? When he entered the carriage with the boy, the carriage that makes the daily route from Cicero to Sanchez to Gladys, from there to Mao to Grin, and at dusk to Sorrowfold, he entered the carriage, having come across the river from, like I said, Southwark. The man was a man at dawn, but by the time the carriage arrived at the city of Gladys, the man was a man no more. Well, what was he? demanded Mayor Tendril of the village, bund village bundle of thistles. Some kind of beast? Mayor Gordas shook his head gravely. No, for the man was a woman. The man referred to himself as the Silver Snake, though. Whenever he made that distinction, it was in the third person. The boy didn't know what to make of it. The man wagered with the boy, apparently, saying that he could get enough money for the pair to buy a meal and some drink and some lodgings for the night. The man the boy befriended said he could get the two men to fight between them for his favor before the pair arrived at Sarafold at dusk. Of course, the boy took him up on the wager. It was only for a mug of ale, but nothing came of it. They arrived at Gladys. Unsuccessful, the man had been, to carry either man's favor. The boy thought he had easily won the bet. Once the village, once the carriage arrived at Gladys, the boastful man stepped off. The stable hand intercepted him, so he said, to collect on the bet. But the man said, that he had not yet lost, that he had till dusk to win. The boy nodded, he returned to the carriage, and sat once more with a tight-lipped, tight-pursed pair of merchants. Ultimately, a woman joined the three, a sightly woman with enormous breasts and an infectious laugh. The stable hand thought he had been scammed, that he would not collect from the boastful one. But the cheerful woman revealed her true identity to the stable hand. She inched up her dress, for she had a tattoo of a three-headed hydra on her calf, the same one the boy saw the boastful man sporting. The man was a man at dawn, he was a woman at midday, and, and the man was a man once more at dusk, when the pair arrived at Sorrowfold. When the two exited the cab, with the boastful man's pockets jangling with gold coins, the silver snake, as has been prophesied, confirmed Mayor Lowell, the man who will break the backs of those ruling the Ampicene. Mayor Valk said nothing. He had heard something, something curious from the mayor of Bloody Dagger, something about how, for a cask of ale, a man said he would sprout wings. He did take, ca take a cab to Sarfold. How long ago was this? Mayor Tendril of Village Bundle of Thistles was, was inconsolable. Mayor Gordas stroked his upper arms with his hands to stave off a chill. I looked up this boy. I spoke to him only recently. He confessed 
that it has been some time since the stable hand arrived from the fellow at, from this fellow at Sorrowfold, some three weeks ago now. If this boastful man was not given to, to drink, we would have not the slightest indication that he was in this part of the world. He's in the North Wood. He's in the North Wood. Confirmed, Mayor Roger. You must acknowledge that. He is in the North Wood. He is a threat. We must find him. We must find him before it is too late. He could deceive us all of us. He could be any one of us. He could master the entire North Wood. And with that in his pocket, he could rule the entire Abyssin. The prophecy of the Silver Snake fulfilled. And the mares frantically searched among themselves for a tattoo of a three-headed hydra on their calves. Mayor Vok knew where he would begin his search for this so-called Silver Snake. He exited the noisome chamber and made for the quiet sibling of a forest. Charon and the thirteen other villagers, who had come from Bloody Dagger, found themselves in a confusing, if cheerful, place. The villagers of Bloody Tunic were singing and laughing. Many had assembled for a meal. Children were playing ball in the village square. Charon grunted, I do not see a tavern. My stay won't be long if there no is nothing but water to drink here. A ball came rolling up to the man. He lifted a foot and stopped it. A boy came running up to him. He was wearing a red knit cap and red mittens. Thank you, kind sir, for stopping my ball. Whew, I am so out of breath. Charon released the ball. The boy cheerfully scooped it up. You must not know me. Why do you say that? asked Charon, a quizzical look on his face. Most people avoid me, even here, even though I feel I am at home here. People steer clear of me, too, let me tell you said Charon. He reached with his hand to touch the boy's head, but the child backed away. I wouldn't do that, warned the voice from for, warned the warned the voice from someone behind him. Charon paused. Withdrawing his hand, he turned and faced the source of the voice. The young one mother Celeste. Go on and play, Azin, the woman instructed the boy, and leave your, your gloves and cap on. Sure thing, answered the boy. Don't worry. Charon assured the boy. I like you. I'll look for you later. I'd like that. There will be no problem finding me. Everyone make sure they know where I'm at. And so saying, he took the ball and ran back toward a crowd of enthused children. What's up with that kid? asked Charon, frowning. I sense a lot of sorrow in him. Just so you know, I turn no one away. No matter who they are or what they represent, there was a glint in the young woman's eye, but that acknowledgement was quickly masked. Neither will you turn us away, queried the man, eyeing the one mother. I know more about you than you think. This is no place for you. You will come to know that about Bloody Tunic soon enough. Do you sense I do not fear your God? questioned the villager. You have not come here looking for God, but there is another reason why you are here. You knew Bloody Tunic had something to offer you, someone important to you. Won't you admit to that? Charon frowned. Whatever do you mean? Celeste smiled. Never mind. Finally, she confessed. The boy has brought you here. That boy there, the one who is responsible for the deaths of three kings. 
Charon spun around. He eyed the boy, the same boy in the knit cap and mittens. I was playing ball with the other children. How has he killed one king? And certainly, if he has, in fact, killed one king, how is it he has killed three? Their weakness? I will tell you. The boy trusted them. They have violated that trust that cost the three kings their lives. All right, then. I won't have one more word with the boy. I won't let him trust me. Won't offer him the opportunity, just like I won't violate that said trust. I will refrain from touching him, as certainly that rep that presents a threat as well. No, this place is not safe, as I assumed it was. I'm not here for the boy. No, I will steer clear of the boy, much to your chagrin, apparently. Very well, stated Celeste. I do know one thing. You are not here for God. Try not to engage the pilgrims here. They are here to commune with the faithful, not with one who refuses to acknowledge a God. Maybe you will come to know there is a God. That's my hope, that you may be my brother someday. And with that said, the one mother winked and snaked her way through the dense crowds of the faithful and ultimately disappeared. Charon looked after the one mother, intrigued. His heart stirred. He identified with the woman on some level. He then turned to the peculiar boy wearing the knit cap and the mittens. What made this boy so special? Why did Charon not see in him the threat, despite being told he killed three kings? Despite what he said to the one mother, he would keep this boy close to him, Charon told himself. He would find out the threat he posed. It was why Celeste pointed him out, was it not? Celeste saw the threat that Charon posed. She intended for the two of them to come together. Zedder from Bloody Dagger approached a moling Charon and said, I don't know about you guys, but I'm hungry. And for the wafers and the water that the people here want to offer us. Let's test their forgiving and generous nature, prompted Gregory. I see the bleeding lamb over there. Come on. They have let us in. Let them take the succulent mutton out of our mouths. Let them tell us we don't belong here. That everything that we see does not belong to us. Let them tell us that. And so saying, the villagers of Bloody Dagger scooped down, swooped down upon the restless lamb. One of them swiftly snapped the animal's neck. Once that was done, they descended upon five persons sitting around a campfire, engaged in the art of summoning some lost soul. Once the, lie, once the five had been trampled upon and driven away, the rogue villagers went to work, peeling away the flesh and sticking the meat on branches. Ha! The people of da Bloody Dagger could barely tolerate us, insisted Devin. Let's see how long it takes before we lose our welcome here. Daver brought out a barrel of ale. How is it you came across that? queried Charon. The people of Bloody Tunic are more than we are than we see, indicated Pauline. Turns out not so celibate or sober. What kind of god lives in a brothel? Charon said nothing, only turned back and watched the curious boy in the nightcap, playing without a care in the world. Mayor Vok came upon the still, silent village of Bloody Dagger. He knew something was wrong when he was within a hundred yards of the place and heard not the slightest sound. 
What has happened? The mayor wondered. The mayor took care entering the village. Immediately, he was distraught by what he saw. For atop the roof of the nearest building lay the body of a man, pale, naked, bloating in the sun, cawing crows, pecking at it. How did that body get on top of the building? How could the other villagers allow such a peculiar death to happen among their own? Mayor Valk entered the house with the body fixed atop the roof. Inside, he was immediately drawn to the curious sight of a dead family. They were huddled together, interlocked, wedged in the rafters. By all indications, to escape a flood, this family did not survive. Was there one that did? Mayor Valk exited the house and entered the square. Yes, there was a water line. He identified it on the clock tower. It robbed the clock the ability to tell time. Mayor Valk departed the clock tower and made his way throughout the entire village. Not one soul living, each and every one of them having drowned. He was convinced of this as having happened when he turned over three bodies with his toe and brackish water issued from their mouths. The mayor was convinced that this fearful silver snake was a part of this village. Perhaps he had entered the village only days before. Mayor Volk understood this man to be to have left bloody dagger, intent on killing all who had witnessed the curious stranger sporting the three-headed hydra tattoo. Mayor Volk grimaced. The silver snake most certainly was among the fifteen of the villagers who took part in recruiting with the understanding of the mayor of Bloody Dagger Marvis to undermine the one mother and the village bloody tunic. Yes, Mayor Vok knew what he had to, what he had to do. He had to go to Bloody Tunic. He had to find the silver snake. He had to eliminate the threat he posed, despite him being shielded by the faithful there. Mayor Vok swiftly exited the dead village and headed southeast. Charon sat watching the boy wearing the nightcap and mittens. Azen was thoroughly enjoying himself, running from one child to the next, engaged in play. What was this kid? He was responsible for the deaths of not one king, but three. Certainly he could not have, a, have fooled everyone. He was just like any boy. Charon offered a stiff wave to Azen. Exuberant, he ran up to him. He cheerfully took the man by the hand. Why are you here? asked the man, studying the boy carefully. Don't you think I belong here? The man would not would go, get nowhere if the boy only followed a question with a question. They say you were close to a king. I've been close to eight kings, not just one king. They say you killed three kings. What do you have to say to that? As in shrugged, not three kings, two kings. Besides, it wasn't me. It was other people, people I trusted, people that valued that trust. I might understand one king, but three kings? Like, I'm like a rash. Do you want to play? How did you earn their trust? How did you? Earn, how did they earn your trust? They asked me questions, like you're asking me questions. Sharon extended a hand and took the boy by the arm. Listen, young one, I want to tell you something. 
What's that? queried Anson. Charon hesitated, then looked directly in the boy's eye, and would not relent. I am your father. Anson whispered in awe. That's weird. How's that weird? asked Charon. Well, the first king, he said he was my father. And the man who killed that king, he said he was my brother. Curious. Charon refused to acknowledge what the boy was saying. No, that's not true. I can't speak for those two. They were liars, but me, I am your father. Look at me. When you look at me, what do you see? Don't you see your father? I don't believe you, the boy as and tried to break away, but Charon held him firm. No, look at me. Don't you see? Don't you? Here I am. Or you, you are reunited with your father. It's no good, insisted Azen, wrestling with the man. You shouldn't have said that. What's no good? asked Sharon. Why are you nice to me? I want to be nice to you, but I can't. Come here, prompted Sharon. There's no reason to fear me. But you don't fear me. Not nearly as much as you should, uttered the child frankly. Especially if you want me to be your friend, or worse, your son. I understand there are consequences. We can overcome them. The both of us, being together, he most certainly needed to gain the boy's trust. The boy had power. He had connections. He knew kings, at least eight of them, outside the North Wood. With the boy by his side, the path would be clear for him to take the North Wood. Okay. That concludes uh, episode two of King of the Northwood. Uh, I hope you enjoy it, and the next installment will come next week. See you soon. Hear from you soon. Bye-bye.